Welcome to the True Craft Podcast. I am your host, Chris Farman, founder and CEO of Small Batch Standard, the premier financial agency built to serve the craft brewing industry. And as usual, we're here to discuss topics that are on every brewery owner's mind. Today, we have a killer episode all about brewery operations. Brandon and I start by mulling over the complications of running a brewery, finding balance, and who to look for when filling the operations role. Then our guest today is Adam Robbins, co-founder at Rubens Brew in Seattle, Washington. Adam is certainly a pioneer in the Pacific Northwest when it comes to craft breweries. During the interview, Adam shares intensive knowledge about growth, hiring, and strategies that have helped Rubens grow to the powerhouse it is today. You do not want to miss this episode. All right, let's do this. Staring at that canning line really lit a fire in us. Every single bartender was supposed to ask, how did you hear about us? I fell in love with stuff that wasn't the crappy stuff we were drinking at college parties. Not to name names. All right. So, yes, operations. Here we go. Yes, yes. operations. Let's do it. Um so would you agree with me that running a brewery is hard as shit? Yeah. I mean, there, I think there's a lot of aspects of running a brewery that are hard as shit. I mean, you've got the logistical, you know, uh, operations, the, lo- the logistics of the brewery, how the brewery runs, uh, you know, sourcing your ingredients. You got, you got all of that stuff, but then you've got sales. Um, you can make a ton of beer, but if you can't sell it, it's just going to sit there. Uh, and the balance between those two, because you can also oversell beer and not be able to produce it fast enough. Um, and then also there's, I think, something that that doesn't get talked about a lot, which is sort of burnout. The idea, you know, that whenever you make something that's a passion into a profession, it doesn't necessarily always go as planned with the, oh, you never work a day in your life if you're doing something you love. No, once something that you love becomes a responsibility, it becomes a responsibility. And right. that doesn't mean you don't love it anymore, but you have to figure out how that fits into your life now. Yeah. So I, you know, I preached early on that running a brewery was hard as shit and there's so many aspects and it's, it's like five, running five businesses in one. And I got all these slogans that I came up with for it. But the reality is, is if you compare it to any jobs you ever had or any, any careers or any jobs that I've ever had, there really is nothing like running a brewery because you have, you, you make it first of all, and a lot of people make things, but you're making it, you're selling it. There's so much regulation and so much compliance that if you look at uh, a complimentary maker, right, they, they're not going to have this kind of compliance, like someone making bed frames. There's no compliance for bed frames. I mean, maybe, maybe waste compliance for trash or metal, but I mean, you guys have so many rules, regulations, procedures you got to follow because at the end of the day, you're making something that another human's going to ingest. 100%. And that's hard. Hopefully dude. the goal is that a human is going to ingest it. So hopefully. Right. What would you say is the hardest part of the, what, what, what is the hardest part of the operations of running a brewery? I, it's the, it's just the balance of everything. I mean, I think you really hit the nail on the head when you talked about how complex it was. There are so many aspects to running a brewery. Um, production is just one. Sales is just one. Compliance is just one. HR is just one. 
um, you know, the numbers, that's another one. And, Mm -hmm. you know, all these, all these are very intricate, complicated facets on their own, uh, just sourcing ingredients and not to mention all the curveballs that do come at you. I mean, you know, we're, we are in the midst of the start of a pretty large aluminum shortage going into next year. And that's going to be, I think, a topic that comes up a lot, uh, in 2021 is aluminum, you know, where is everybody getting their cans now? And, uh, in addition to just running the business, you have to also remember that you're in a supply and demand business. And the more uh, breweries which have, you know, prospered and done well, which there's been a huge growth spurt in our industry in the past 10 years, which is great, means that everybody's competing for the same resources. So, you know, everything from, from sourcing where your ingredients are coming from to actually, you know, doing the business, which is making the beer and selling the beer uh, and all the things in between, it is quite complicated. And I, I'm sure there's a lot of businesses like it, but this business is mine. And this is the one I know. And yeah, there's a lot that goes on. And I'll tell you the truth. Uh, it's a lot to do on your own. You really need to, if you want to be successful, you really do need to surround yourself with the right people uh, to help you accomplish your goals and realize that you cannot do everything. It's just too much. Right. Uh, do you guys have a dedicated like director of operations for the production side or is that synonymous with the head brewer or brewmaster? I'm, I'm seeing a bunch of different org charts appear yeah. over the last like two years regarding what that role looks like and, and uh, who they hire for it. Look, I think every brewery is different. I think um, most breweries out there were born of passion and therefore came from an idea and a love for the industry and then grew as a business um, that came out of that. So they're all a little bit different, you know, and I think the role, even from one brewery to another, you might have the same title, but your role might be a little bit different, you know, a head brewer, uh, versus a director of operations, director of brewing operations, production manager. These are a lot of the terms that, that float around, you know, at DC Brow, we had a, uh, we, we had a production manager for a long period of time who functioned as a head brewer and also, you know, functioned from the logistics point of view uh, as, you know, being the one who was sourcing our ingredients and keeping keeping the wheels on the bus when it came to making sure that we had what we needed to brew the beer. Um, now we have a head brewer who does a lot of the same. Uh, the title has changed, but a lot of the work is the same. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it's just, it's different from brewery to brewery. The titles have specific meanings, but at the end of the day, every brewery is different and there's a lot of overlap. Um, I, you know, I don't think most we're 10 years old and I think the lines are blurred between a lot of, um, what people do here, not because of sloppiness on the part of management, but just because, you know, we have a lot to do and we only have so many people to do it and everybody steps up to get done what needs to get done. It's, it's definitely, a passion industry where it's not just the owners that are passionate, but, um, you know, hopefully if you've got good people working for you, they're passionate too. And everybody's got the same goal. Um, so you find that a lot of the, the, the roles get blurred and, and while people have their responsibilities in any business, I think, especially in this one and just how small most of these breweries are in the country right now, you know, it's sort of the, everybody steps up to do everything they can sort of model. Yeah. 
It's it's funny you say that. It definitely is an all hands on deck mentality, and we work with breweries of all different sizes, up to thirty thousand barrels in production. And even at that level, you people that are listening may think, "Wow, when we get to twenty or thirty thousand barrels, this org chart is going to be fully fledged out, and we're going to have all the right people in the right seats." Well, in reality, even at thirty thousand, it's still pretty microscopic compared to uh, other. Uh, larger regional players or national players. And they do operate with an all hands on deck because you just, that's just the way they are, right? They, they, it's just the way they are. The progression that I usually see is, you know, a co-founder, the co-founder brewer or founder brewer will one day graduate out of that role. And it, and it, to start, he's doing everything right He or She is doing everything. They're, they're doing the ordering, they're doing the brewing, they're doing the cleaning, then they graduate out of cleaning and packaging. Then they graduate out of brewing and they're doing the production side. And every so often, and we'll talk more about this in the leadership episode, but every so often the uh, you know, owner, founder, brewer will be afforded the opportunity to step back and really become, oversee a production manager who's overseeing what is now maybe the shift brewer and everyone kind of moves up the chain. So, um, but that, that director of ops role, director of brewing operations or production, whatever you want to call it really takes a special person. I mean, it takes someone who is organized. (laughs) Yeah. What's that? Organization is key. We both like said organization first, I think, which is, you know, yeah. Yeah. Tell me the profile of what you think a killer director of brewing ops or production looks like. Yeah. Organization is key. You need to have foresight. You need to have great hindsight. You need to be able to identify what worked, what didn't. Um, Also, you've got to be sharp. I mean, you know, the ability to sort of look at a beer and realize without sacrificing quality, what's inefficient about this beer, you know, I mean, and it's not necessarily cutting back ingredients, but maybe there's a better place to source it from. You know, you've got to be mm-hmm. savvy when it comes to contracting your ingredients. You have to know how to negotiate. You've also um, really got to be able to roll with the punches when it comes to, I mean, like, look at this year, for example, right? I mean, this year gave everybody in the industry a gut punch, um, you know, right at the end of the first quarter. Well, everybody's contracted out and everybody's got obligations that they need to fulfill. So like, how do I adapt? How do I roll with the punches? And a lot of the times, um, some of that falls on the director of, of brewing ops because you got to look at, you know, everybody that you're pulling ingredients from and, um, you know, how am I going to adjust this so that we're coming out of this thing? Okay. And not just that, I mean, you know, scheduling what brews we're going to go in, you know, what right. beers can last longer if we're brewing less, what beers do we need to make sure uh, we're brewing smaller amounts of, but more frequently because they're supposed to be our freshest beers. Uh, there's a lot that goes into it. I think you hit the nail on the head with organization. That is that is definitely key. Um, but, uh, you know, it depends really on everything the director of brewery operations does because if that person is writing recipes too, which not all directors of brewery ops do, um, you know, if, if you're doing that too, then you need to have that creative understanding of how all these ingredients work together and um, that sort of artistic touch and that scientific knowledge as well. But mm-hmm. really it depends on the size of the brewery and um how how diversified those responsibilities are at the brewery. Right. 
I think uh, one other point is level-headed. I, um, I have witnessed at other breweries that there's the, the director of brewing operations has to be the glue between the sales and the production team and, yeah. and really meld out that friction that comes out, especially in self-distribution breweries. Cause if you have sales reps that are out there and they're, they're running and gunning and the beer's not there to sell, they're coming in screaming, dude. I've seen it yeah. like firsthand out of their pocket. Yep. And so that director of brewing operations has got to be able to stay level-headed, stay cool between both, both parties and ensure that everyone is getting paid. It's, it's a pretty important job, if not one of the more important jobs at a brewery. And I think if you have the right person and you're the right size, it, it just makes everything go really, really smooth. Yeah. And I think that the right person and the right size can't be emphasized enough because I feel like at breweries, we're always catching up. I mean, most of us, since we're passion projects, you know, are cash strapped. Um, it's, it's the brewery is growing out of a passion and that works financially as well. You start with, um, you know, what it's going to take to be successful. And then as you grow and set new goals of what you're going to achieve, um, you know, the, the position and growth comes as you're working to achieve those goals. Um, so, um, you know, it's, it's definitely the situation where I feel like the right person usually comes along when you're already in the role of realizing that you need that person there. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about your head brewer right now who acts as the director of operations or brewing operations at least, or am I getting that right? Or wrong? Yeah. I mean, so, so yeah, so that would be Rob Rodriguez. He is awesome. Um, he has been here for, um, a little bit over a year and, um, came to us from, uh, the Midwest and, um, he's just, he's just been great. I mean, he landed right away with, uh, a, a great palette and great creativity when it came to writing recipes. And, um, in particular, one of the things that was really attractive at the time was we, so we, we have launched a seltzer, um, in the past, uh, I guess about year and a half. Um, and, uh, one of the things that was really exciting to us was the seltzer knowledge he was bringing to the table. He just put together a very impressive seltzer. Um, and we tasted that and we're, we're really impressed with it, but also his, his organization, um, his uh, ability to run teams. Um, those were all things that attracted us to him when we were in the interview process and he has delivered in, um, pretty much all of those categories since he's been here. So it's been really nice to work with him. Um, and one of the things that's really nice about Rob is that he does have uh, the dual faceted nature of being super organizational, being, uh, being really, really uh, on top of ordering foresight. Um, but also he's very creative when it comes to uh, recipes. So we've had some, some nice beers that have come out of the brewery since then. And he also works really well with Jeff, who's my partner and the brewmaster here. The two of them collaborate on recipes uh, very frequently with a lot of the, the one-offs we've been uh, putting out especially. So, you know, he's got a, a great ability to work with people, very creative, very talented when it comes to uh, recipe creation and uh, beer formulation. But also he's got the organization, foresight, um, and calmness <laughs> that it takes to, uh, to basically manage a whole bunch of suppliers. Yeah. 
Hey, do me a favor, walk me through, and this is totally from my knowledge, walk me through a recipe design. Like how does that even start? So um, usually a recipe design starts with a concept from us, what we want the beer to be. Um, you know, we're so a style? Yeah, it, so it, it can depend. Like usually, I mean, you've got to have a style before you come up with a recipe, but the inspiration for a beer can come from anywhere. I think the inspiration for our beers used to really come from uh, a, a concept like a name or uh, like on the wings of Armageddon was sort of, it was supposed to be the end of the world, you know, uh, 2012. And we wanted a beer that was going to, you know, speak to that. And so from that, the name came, then Imperial IPA came. Uh, but these days really um, we always lead with the style and um, we're much more market driven with our decisions with what we're producing these days. Um, so Whereas an inspiration for a beer might've come from, you know, uh, something that we thought was cool back in 2012. Now it really comes from looking at market data, looking at what is working, um, what is not. Um, so, you know, we have an Imperial IPA coming out next year and that was based on looking at, Hey, you know, uh, flagship Imperial IPAs are, are doing pretty good right now. Um, and we, Prior to that, you know, released a hazy beer because hazy beers are doing good. Um, but, uh, you know, start with the, the concept of what the beer is going to be, uh, what profiles we want in the beer. You know, do we want this to be um, a piney West Coast hop bomb or do we want this to be, you know, a juicy, low bitterness, fruit forward IPA? And from there, you know, uh, the right person can put together a recipe that's going to you know, use the right malt and the right hops to balance out, uh, the flavor that we want, you know, and, and, uh, Rob's definitely got that concept as well. And also you've got to be conscious of, you know, what is, what is going into this beer, not just price wise, but are these ingredients going to be sustainable? Is this something that we're going to, you know, be able to brew over and over again, or are we using something that is too new? Are we using hop technology that is too new and won't be able to repeat itself? So um, basically, uh, getting back on track here, you know, we'll start off with a concept, we'll start off with a style, um, we'll talk about what we want that beer to be, um, we'll start to formulate the beer. From there, um, we will do a test batch of the beer, and not always, sometimes, like if it's a, a one-off beer or something, we might just brew it, um, but uh, we will, especially for anything that's going to be a recurring beer, we will brew a test batch of it. Uh, we will do sensory on that. We will analyze that so we know any changes we need to make. Um, and then we'll go forward uh, with production. And usually the branding and name of the beer um, is going to come about, you know, two thirds of the way through the process. Um, but it really just depends on what the, what the, you know, impetus for the beer is. For example, we just released a beer that was to honor the memory of uh, one of our coworkers and friends, uh, Ben Tolkien, who just passed away from Ewing sarcoma. And we knew right away, you know, where that beer was coming from. It was coming out of a uh, desire to honor Ben and his phrase, live in the dream. And the fact that he liked American pale ale beers. So, you know, that was what we were starting with, with that. We already had a name. We already had the beer style from the start. Um, so every beer is a little bit different, but these days we tend to make our decisions based on how the market is reacting to a style. And if we have uh, a hole in our portfolio or in our book where that style uh, could plug in, 
and be something that, you know, hopefully would be successful for us. So um, in that case, the name usually comes about two thirds of the way through the process. Got it. I don't want to breeze over the, the fact that you guys honored uh, your friend, Ben and, and, my condolences. I know we've talked about this before. Uh, it was super awesome what you guys did uh, for him. Um, but one other question. So when the recipe is developed, does it go into a, do you throw it on the 30 barrel rig or do you put it on a smaller like test system or? So we do have, so we've got basically three brew systems here. We've got like a barrel size system. Um, we have a uh, 15 barrel system and we've got a 30 barrel system and you would think, Oh, just, you know, brew it on the small system and, and see how that uh, turns out. And that's great to do. Um, you know, you can do that, but there are going to be differences, uh, between, you know, uh, something you brew on a, on a Kegel system versus something you brew on a mostly manual 15 barrel system versus something you brew on a mostly automated top of the line system. Um, so if we're talking about a, a beer, that's going to be something that we want to do over and over. We will brew it on the 30 barrel system. We might not call it what we're intending to call it from the start. We might release it as a one-off and, and see how people react to it and see if there's any changes we want to make. Um, or we might brew it on the 15, knowing that one day it might get scaled up to the 30, but you know, the beer that's going to come out of each of those three systems is different. Um, so if we really want the most accurate depiction of what that's going to be, and that would be for for example, this new Imperial IPA that's coming out, which is going to be in our minds a year round beer. Yes. We would brew that on the 30 barrel system. And we did. Mm -hmm. Cool. Thanks for walking me through that, man. Um, talk to me about standard operating procedures as it relates to operations. Are those important or do we kind of just, you know, follow what the last guy did or is there anything no, documented? It's massively important. And anybody who's thinking about starting a brewery or wanting to start a brewery, you're going to have to create a lot of SOPs. So standing operating procedures, you know, I don't want to bore everybody out there, but they really apply to everything we do at the brewery, everything from, you know, uh, actually making the beer to how we clean the vessels to, you know, how we receive products to, um, you know, HR to, um, anything, anything, you know, how we run the tap room, anything related to the business should really be documented with an, with an SOP. And the reason for that is that you want everybody to be doing things the same way. And also it's good to have a log or some sort of, you know, binder that people can reference to make sure that they're doing things right. Um, as I mentioned before, every brewery is different and a lot of breweries do things in slightly different ways. We're all achieving the same product, hopefully, which is delicious beer at the end of the day. But the path to get there is very specific at DC Brow. The path might be a little bit different at another brewery. And it doesn't mean the beer is any worse or any better. But for us, this is how we do things. So you really do need SOPs to create consistency, to create safety at the brewery. And just so that everybody's on the same page with the, you know, procedures and, and operations that we're following. Yeah. When I was young in my accounting career, uh, one of my mentors always told me, stop cutting corners, stop cutting corners, but there were no SOPs to follow. So it was basically follow what I'm telling you to do, but don't cut corners. And it made, it, it didn't make a lot of sense at the time. It makes a ton of sense now. And I think that SOPs are usually born out of a necessity or a really maybe a, a giant screw up that you don't want to have happen again. <laughs> Hopefully not, but that happens. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, do, well, do think you, about do you it. Have I mean, a lot of SOPs now for your accounting firm. Oh, uh, we have tons of SOPs. We have we have checklists and procedures from everything from closing the books to sales process to um our our monthly meetings, our weekly meetings. Mm-hmm. Yes, it has been um Tom Tom Miller has built that out for us very very well. We have a huge reference catalog that we uh, can reference any any docs um Standard operating procedures are the key to consistency in any business. You right. know, I, I don't care if it's um, an accounting firm or if it's a brewery. If you want things done in a consistent way, you need to have a standard way that they are done. Standing operating procedures, they help you to put all that together. Um, yep. And sometimes they are born out of uh, an accident. Hopefully not. But hopefully something good comes out of that accident and that's it doesn't happen again because you wrote an SOP. And, um, also that can lead to, uh, you know, just going down a wormhole where you realize, okay, we have an SOP for this. And then you think we need SOPs for all these other things. So, um, I don't think having an SOP for everything is something that every brewery will have right when it opens, unless you're perhaps opening your second brewery, (laughs) but I, I think they grow organically at first, but then once you really invest the time, you realize how much, uh, does need to be uh, recorded and written down so that you do have that consistency from batch to batch, from person to person. And especially let's not forget with safety, you know, in a brewery SOPs aren't just about the quality of the beer. They're about the safety of your staff. Right. Are you guys open to suggestions on changing the SOPs? If someone wants to make a suggestion or is it pretty much do it our way or beat it? No, no. I, I, you know, I think that, um, the brewery is definitely run with a collaborative spirit. Um, you know, just cause a suggestion is made doesn't mean it's, um, it's valid or the right thing to do, but you know, it does mean it's, it's worthy of considering. Um, there's been plenty of times when we've made changes to SOP or to any policy really because something was suggested and then we thought about it. Um, but at, at Brow, we, we do have a pretty good, uh, a panel of peer review, I guess you would say, as far as when it comes to things like that, um, you know, especially for anything policy related stuff. Um, you know, we have, we've got meetings with the executive team multiple times a week. And during COVID that's only increased, um, because not everybody's here on site, but we still meet on a, on a pretty much constant basis. And anytime, and we've had to alter policy a lot because of COVID. So whenever a suggestion comes up or the facts of what's known about COVID have changed or whatnot, um, we have adjusted our policy and procedures to accommodate those. Um, so usually we'll discuss those. And if we decide that it's the right thing to do, we'll move forward with it. Nice. Awesome, dude. Who do you want to give a shout out to today? Oh man. So, um, I got to give a shout out to, uh, Scott Vaccaro from Captain Lawrence Brewing. So, uh, this operations episode seems like a, a pretty appropriate shout out because when, when Jeff and I were planning this brewery, uh, I'd gotten a bottle of beer of his, uh, from a, a market somewhere in town and it had his email address on the back. And I sent him an email saying like, Hey, we're opening a brewery in Washington, DC. Do you have time to talk? And he got back to me nearly right away. And, um, he definitely, uh, uh, was willing to share all that he had to pass on. He had just opened Captain Lawrence not too far before that. Um, but, 
he was always very, very willing to share information and help us overcome some operational um, humps that maybe we didn't need to go through. And uh, it was just really nice of him to do. And I don't know if he even remembers that, but I hope he does. He came to visit us when he was in town for, um, for Saver one of the years and came by the brewery when we had just started to, to meet us after that, that conversation. But it was very much appreciated. I think shout out worthy. Dude, that's incredible. He had his email on the back of a bottle of beer. Dude, his email was on the back of the beer. It was like it was like Scott at Captain Lawrence or something like that. The guy's a be- <laughs> he, he's a beast. Dude, he was it's so awesome. And and just yeah. like we were just blown away by that. Um I especially was. Yeah, no, no one would ever do that today. Yeah. Cool, I, I regret to say I do not have my personal email address on the back of a can of public, unfortunately. No, no, you don't need to. <laughs> All right, man. All right, man. Let's get to the interview with Adam from Rubens Bruce. Let me introduce you to Brandon Skull, uh, the co-host of season one and um, owner of DC Brow Brewing. Hi. Hey, Adam. How's it going, man? All right. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, I'm excited about 2021. Yeah, yeah. It's going to get better, right? It's going to get better. That's right. Um, love your stuff. Whenever I'm in D.C., we always, we always have, have your beer. It's, um, it's, it's, uh, it's something we, we look for. Like when we used to do a saver multiple years running. So we've got to try a lot of your, your beers then. Oh man, I, I love hearing that. Thank you so much uh, for saying that. And you know, if, if you're ever back in the city at any point, you know, when uh, when the world sort of gets back to normal, please uh, let us know. Drop us a line so you can come visit the brewery. Would love to. Would love to. Yeah. Likewise, if you're in Seattle anytime. I, that you know, Seattle's on my uh, to do list of places to go to when this is over. We when we were building the brewery out, we went to Seattle on a whirlwind 24 hour trip to look at. Uh, brewing equipment that was being decommissioned. Um, but it was like fly in, check it out and get out. of <laughs> <laughs> Where was that? Was that Elysian? Was it? Or... No, it was, uh, what is it? Maritime Pacific. Is that the name? Oh, of it? Yeah, yep. that's right. Yeah. Um, the Vince Catone from, I think sound brew is his company or something was like acting as a, um, an agent representing them. So we flew out to check out, uh, it was the, the brew system, the kettle and mash yeah. gun. And it was sort of like, it was converted. They had welded a big section in the mash tun in order to um, expand it. Um, we ended up not uh, buying that system, but it did make for a very fun trip out to Seattle that uh, <laughs> resulted in not a lot of sleep and a lot of time on planes. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. <laughs> cool. nice. So I'm pumped about today's episode because so far the guests that we have spoken to have been smaller breweries and, uh, you know, Adam, you're up near 30,000 barrels, Brandon, you're up near 16,000. So I think our operations talk today is going to be awesome. First of all, and second of all, a little bit more comparable with, um, with, with, with the size, uh, with, with your sizes. Um, the, the, the guests we've had so far have been tiny, um, and more, maybe more taproom focused or, but they've been great guests. So, uh, the topic today is operations, and Adam, we're just going to go through, you know, just a casual conversation about operations on both sides. I'll have questions for you, Brandon, Will, 
Uh, I know you do this all the time. We just listened to your podcast on craft beer. Uh, what is it called? Craft beer and brewing. Oh yeah. Yeah. The one yeah. I did the other day. Yes. That yeah. was a great, <laughs> great episode. Good. Um, Good. So yeah, let's, let's get started. Uh, I want to introduce and welcome Adam Robbins from Rubens Brews out of Seattle, Washington. How you doing, Adam? I'm doing great. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. How are you doing? Great. I'm excited to have you on the show today because I know you guys are doing some killer stuff right now. Uh, despite uh, last year and COVID and what happened, you guys m- maintained uh, a lot of a lot of good, decent growth, and and um, it's a testament to the brand and and um, how it stands up in the Pacific Northwest. Do Thanks. you want to tell everyone a little bit about a uh, short little small background about the brewery? Yeah, yeah. So um, it, we opened in 2012. I was a home brewer that got the bug. Um, like, you know, consistent story with, with lots of breweries, I think. Um, we kind of, I, I, the way I describe it is we got pulled into uh, brewing. So like I had a good job. I didn't want to leave that job. We, but we had people asking for our beer as home brewers. And we thought, well, let's open a small space. And uh, that'd be fun because we enjoy brewing we enjoy people uh, sharing our beer with people and then within six months that that brewery was out of capacity then uh, it took us two years to find another 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 brewery um another space and then within a, six months that was out of capacity as well so like we've actually brewed three we actually have three different brew houses um and uh today we uh when well, 2020 we brewed around twenty four thousand barrels um and we have a five-barrel brewery, a fifteen-barrel brewery, and a and a thirty thirty-barrel brewery, uh, and we're um, distributed um, primarily in the Pacific Northwest. Wow! So uh, operations are to- <laughs> totally important when when you're dealing with three separate brew houses. Can you talk to us about what's brewed on the various systems? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, we we actually. Um, last year, uh, we got our, uh, or the year before last, we got our biggest fermenter, which was a 190-barrel fermenter. But that same week, we got two seven-barrel fermenters at the same time. So oh, funny. Uh, so we um, we put in two two of our smallest tanks the same week we put in our biggest tank. So those different brew houses are all a, a function of um, sizing a batch for the appropriate need. So if it's one of our flagships, then we're going to brew it on the bigger bigger system where the canning line is. Um, but if we're just going to try something out, like um, uh, a small experimental batch, we'll brew it on the small five-barrel system and just, just knock out a five-barrel batch. So, so last year, we brewed about 180 different beers. We actually canned, I think, 110. And... Um, that we we scope we the way we can do that is by having the three different brew houses and mm-hmm. being able to like size specific to the to the batch needs hey adam may i ask yeah. one of the things first of all i really like about your website is how you've got the timeline on there and you sort it sort of goes through explaining the the growth that you just talked about visually um so you can see the the growth of the the brewery but one of the things i'm curious about is 
you know, it, it seems now very intentional with the three different breweries, but did that grow just, um, you know, serendipitously or was it, uh, you know, needing a whole new location rather than adding on? seems like everything worked out for each brewery to have its own purpose. Did that happen by accident or was that intentional from the start? That's a great question. Um, so when we first started, I, like I said, I was a home brewer that kind of got the bug and I kept my day job for the first 18 months. And the first space was was small enough that if it all went horribly wrong, um, our son, who was very young at the time, could just ride his bike around that 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 little warehouse <laughs> for, until the end of the lease, right? And that's actually what he did on his birthday before we'd started building on his birthday when he was like two or three. He just like rode a bike around in, in, in this in this space. Um, so that was kind of, I, I talk about like dipping our toe in the water to see what the temperature was. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't realize that we were falling in at the same time. You know, there was, it was, we were like testing it and we could, break from this but um really we were in it you know we were, we were we were jumping in with both feet but we didn't really realize it at the time so when we realized after six months we were totally out of capacity we had we had a waiting list of over 100 different accounts who wanted our beer but we had no beer like it, we had nothing um it, it only we were thinking about a bigger brew house and and because we couldn't expand in that space it was so small i mean it's only it's less than one and a half thousand square feet that 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 little warehouse and um it only clicked to us that when we thought well okay if we keep this brew house we can still keep the variety of our beers but we can get a bigger brew house to sort of leverage um uh, some economies of scale but the the bigger brew house only made sense when grace my wife and co-founder she said well why don't we keep the smaller brewery so um it was a very um it, it was only when we had sort of had that aha moment did we uh, really realize that hey, actually, yeah, this could, this would work, you know, it, it is true to who we are and what we were about. And then conversely, when we moved uh, again, we ran out of physical space. So we're in this, uh, we're pretty central in Seattle. We're in, a, in one of the neighborhoods, Seattle called Ballard, but it's, it's pretty central. So it's really hard to get big buildings and what you end up having we actually have five different leases so we have lots of smaller different buildings um rather than one that we can put everything under one roof because we're pretty centrally located so you end up with this patchwork quilt and of of not just spaces but effectively breweries <laughs> uh, not not maybe the most efficient but kind of the way we we, we ended, ended up now i'm i'm curious um were you during that first, you know, first couple of years when you were just sort of dabbling and and you sort of had a, a parachute plan in case it didn't work out? Um, were you primarily doing the brewing or had you already hired on staff to to help with some of the production needs? Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, let's just go back. So when I was a home brewer, um, my wife is from Illinois and her her. Um, sister and brother-in-law was still in Illinois and we had um I think they were visiting Seattle once and uh, he was oh, I'm gonna I always get it wrong I think he was Bud Light uh, in there's a, supposed to be a difference between Bud Light and Coors Light and I'm I'm not quite <laughs> sure what that is but <laughs> um, uh, so he was he was a light beer fan and I, and I gave him this pumpkin beer that I came up with with toasted pumpkin seeds and spices and stuff and um and he started like hoarding it and we, it was getting low in the party. And then he created his own stash. And he said, probably under the influence of too much pumpkin beer, um, he said, oh, if you ever open a brewery, I'd love to help you out with that. So 
when we signed the lease, the, he was the first person we called. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I, I need to take, I need to take you up on that. So um, the good thing about him, he, he, he also um, used to build houses. And so he could, he can help construct the first brewery. So he was um, the first person to really be on board. And I, I brewed the first 50 batches with him, like training him how to brew in my, my way. Um, and then after that, he then led the next hundreds of batches until we got um, uh, our head brewer, James, joined in uh, 2017. Okay. Oh, wow. That's, that's a good span of time that he was in charge of that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, when we, when in 2015, uh, when that second brewery opened, um, well, in 2014, before the second brewery opened, we had um, really uh, four employees, uh, four of us. So myself, um, uh, Mike, uh, Thor, who ran the tap room and then somebody helping in, in the brewery. Um, so at 2014, so for the first two years, we were at four employees and now we're at like 33, yeah. I think. Um, but at that point, like I would do all the recipe development, help brew, I would sell the beer, I would deliver the beer in my car, which I realized that, um, you know, the ability to physically fit, I could fit 60 cases in our old SUV um, physically, like in footwells, in the passenger seat with seat belts on. (laughs) (laughs) But I didn't really figure out the amount of weight that was. And so I busted up every single wheel (laughs) from that car because the suspension couldn't handle it. And all of the wheel joint bearings kind of went on me. Um, So we bought a truck after that. (laughs) Well, you know, Adam, that's a really familiar story because I think the same thing happened with us here where it was a relatively large span of time where the staff was very small. And I think it's, it's part of that opening mentality and that startup mentality where you, you know, you're, you're playing everything so tight and the more that you can do, so, you know, you can save money on payroll, uh, you do it, but then all of a sudden, once you start to really realize that, Hey, we've grown, we have this need, then, you know, our employees also increased, I think in the second part of our uh, lifespan here, the, the, employee number increased, you know, almost exponentially because we realized that, A, we can't do everything and B, um, you know, what an asset that is to have uh, a robust staff. Yeah, I I totally agree. What is hard to realize is when when that tipping point comes, right? Where where can you be scrappy uh, and and hold everything together still in a sustainable way versus when you need to uh, invest uh, in a, in a bigger staff. That's, that's kind of the hard thing to kind of, it doesn't, it's not, doesn't really strike you in the, between the eyes, you know, it's, it's something you have to feel or, or, or have a realization about. Yeah. And, and on top of that, as you're growing, I mean, the thing that does strike you in the eyes is all the equipment, you know, as your you know, equipment's got that price tag on it and you say, well, I need this, you know, I, I need this, but you know, I can, I can, you know, work overnight. <laughs> You know, so we don't have to hire uh, another uh, brew staff. But but once you do make that transition, it really does open up a whole other world of possibility. And then you as the owner, you know, you get to focus more on on vision, uh, recipe development, you know, what it is that the company now really needs. Yeah, we, we're still in that transition, honestly. Um, I, I um, My background was uh, I was a finance director at a 
big company locally. Um, and so we still don't have anybody in the team that uh, looks after the finance sides. It's, it's all me. So I still do all of that. We don't have anybody running the business on a day-to-day level in, in, in total. So that's me. And so I, um, so uh, there's, there's some hiring that we're going to have to do this year to sort of really sort of solidify the, uh, the management team for the long term. Yep. Hey, Adam, when you guys scaled from your first brew house to the 15 barrel, was that challenging for your brother-in-law brewer at the time? Did you oversee a lot of those initial brews? Talk about that, that operational process. Yeah. Um, we all did bits of everything really. And mm-hmm. being the, uh, being the founder, um, you know, every, you're responsible for everything. So I, um, you know, I, I, I spent a lot of time on the scaling of those recipes and understanding the new brew house and, and the implementation of it. And, um, and we, we kind of managed to have our, our roles and, 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 and set them in a good way to, to come be, be successful. So I got one, one kind of good, good, uh, a couple of good anecdotes. So I, you need to know what you don't know in life. You know, if that sounds maybe a bit weird to say out loud, but like sure. you need to know where your blind spots are. So when I was a home brewer, I, I wanted to know what my blind spots were. So I went, did an intensive course at UC Davis just to kind of um, make me make sure that there wasn't anything I was vastly lacking knowledge on. And one of the things I learned from that is scaling, a, scaling of recipes. Um, but when, before we opened the original brewery, I had, there was 13 processes which I didn't know how to scale. So we actually hired a, um, a guy to help write SOPs for those 13 processes. Just, again, it's an example of, I, I literally went down everything around brewing and thinking about, okay, I could understand how to do this. I can't understand how to do that. And there were 13, lucky for some, I guess, um, uh, processes that we I, I wasn't sure exactly. And so I got some help on that. But um, in terms of scaling between the two, two brew houses, um, there's art and science around scaling um, and you just really need to understand those two pieces. But we brewed our, our Goza won gold at uh, GABF in 2015 that was brewed on the original brew house. And then we scaled it to the larger brew house and it won gold in 2016 on the larger brew house. So the same beer won gold at GABF two years running, but brewed on different brew houses, which is oh, kind nice. of a nice kind of, kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you got the scaling down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but whereas some beers, it's really hard to 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 dial in. You know, like that one was easy relatively, but things that beers that are more malt based, like um, like our porter, it's a lot. The the the, the actual scientific scaling does up uh, change the grist profiles, as you, as you I'm sure you know. Um, so it, there's a lot more art to that that one, and and it took a little longer to get that exactly where we wanted it. Hey, Adam, may I ask about uh, your barrelage growth? Because uh, I am very intrigued about the growth that you've had. I mean, especially it's been a, a particularly challenging year. And I think geographically that varies a lot depending on the region that we're in this year. It's just been a, a really wild year for obvious reasons. But I am curious about the scaling of, of your overall barrelage year to year. When did you see it really um, you know, pop upwards? And what was that growth like? How hard is that to handle? Yeah. Um, so up until 20, so 
I mean, we, we opened our second brew house in the middle of 2015, May 2015. So up to that point, it was a function of just capacity. So we put in a new tank and, and we went from 600 to 800 barrels in one year right. or something. And then when we opened the new brew, brewery, it's like, I've got no idea what we, we had a, li- a waiting list of, I think, of 120 accounts. And um, we signed with, um, with a distributor at the start of 2015, because knowing that we were going to grow into the bigger space. Right. And, um, there was a. Oh, sorry. Were these, were these on-premise accounts or off-premise or both? Both. So, when we when we moved into the new brew, brewery, um, we had fifty on, fifty off, and mm-hmm. and like what I would do is 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 ask people what their orders were for for package, and I did one run every six weeks or so, and then we had to just allocate up to what people had ordered. Um, it was it was um a bit a bit crazy, but um. Yeah, so when we went into the new brew house, I sized it for about 3,000 barrels because when I looked at, at Washington State, that seemed to be kind of a max of where most breweries would get to. Um, but that year, we were 2,700 barrels that year alone. And then the next year, we were 5,700 um, by just putting in more tanks. Um, so our, our distributor was pulling us forward. You know, I talked about um, being pulled into it somewhat. Um, that was a good example of that. And it wasn't until we opened our 30 barrel brew house right at the end of um, 2018. So we did our first batches like December 2018 there. But that was the first time that we had any capacity to kind of um, jump above where we, we were kind of at. So in, if you look at our barrelage, it's largely a function of capacity today, you know, production capacity. Um, you know, that being said, COVID is kind of is, is thrown you know lot trends to uh, to the wall to a large extent, right? Um, and so, so what we did grow a little bit last year, but not as much as we thought. And um, you know, we've been growing at, at pretty much fifty percent a year, and, and last year was like 20 percent, I think, something like that. Hey, any growth last year is a huge accomplishment. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, yeah. I wouldn't be too hard on that. There's, there's a lot of folks out there, you know, um, who, are, who are feeling it too. So I, one of the other things that I found interesting about your brews is the way that you organize the series of them. So um, rather than just having some flagships and some seasonals and one-offs, you've got things broken up into series. Can you talk maybe about how that came about and what the actual series are, why you named them the way you did? Yeah, so... Um... Uh, maybe it's just I've got a logical like mind, but um, we we brewed so many different beers, right? And I, I liken our small brew house and and what we can release in the tap room. It's almost like the feeder system for uh, the major leagues, right? So we're we're gonna try some some beers out in the tap room. If they're successful, then they might get promoted to a bigger batch into a little bit of distribution, and then 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 on from there. So. Um, how the question is like, how do you arrange all of these? Well, you have some year round beers. That's easy enough. Um, we have a, a an IPA seasonal, um, that, that a few breweries breweries have around here. Um, then one example of a, a promotion from the tap room to distribution is, um, our, our 
Ruben's Crush series, which mm. is a hazy IPA series um, that we used to do a small batch releases out of the tap room that were really uh, popular. And um, we wanted to share that with more, more people. So we um, put that into some bigger bigger releases into distribution. Um, so we have a crush series, we have a seasonal IPA series, we have our year round beers, and then we have a um, what we call the Unbounds series, which is uh, one of our uh, key sort of pillars as a brewery is uh, we, we talk about brewing from the glass backwards, so we're not bound by constraints. So the Unbound series is taking some of our year round beers and uh, think of them in more of an un unbound way. So one example would be our porter, where we do a, a chocolate peppermint version of that in the holiday. And then, then we have still the other hundred and whatever beers that we're going to brew in that year. And we, we put, we call them in the Brett series. So one of our, another one of our pillars is, is around a wide variety of beers. And, um, and in, in that Brett series, it could be, we could have anything, um, available in a year it could be new new lagers that we're gonna um see if they're popular or not at, at a bigger level because sometimes things that are popular in the tap room aren't necessarily popular on a, on a broader basis um you know there's a there's a finite level finite market for some beers um so uh yeah so that's kind of how we sort of um sort of group the different beers together Cool. It's, it's a, it's a great system you've got. And, um, I just, I love how, uh, how it sort of, it seems like it sort of happens organically, you know, from the brew, from the brew up with the way that they grow certain beers, as you're saying, grow from the tap room up into production. And then, you know, everybody's got to have a core lineup. And I noticed that you've got several IPAs in your core lineup. Do you find that those cannibalize one another ever, or is it really just, you know, everybody loves IPA? <laughs> well everybody does love IPA I think yeah but um yeah I don't I don't think no I don't think they do cannibalize I think that they're, they're, they're uni uniquely different enough um and uh, that's kind of like what we have to be kind of focusing on we have a session more of a session IPA um, mind the gap we have uh, crikey which was the first IPA American IPA we ever brewed actually back in 2014 and uh that's our most popular beer of all of our beers um and uh, then we have a seasonal IPA rotator, which uh, tends to, which varies um, significantly. Um, and then we have a hazy IPA as well. And then on top of that, we have our Porter and our um, Pilsner as well that are both year rounds. And then in the Brett series is where you tend to see things like, um, you know, Mexican lager, Vienna lager, our Hellas. Um, then you might see a, a double bark or a, Munich Dunkel or, or something like that. That's where some of those more uh, unusual beers kind of kind of sit. Cool. Changing gears for a second, Adam, tell us about your org chart when it comes to the brewer and director of operations. Do you have defined roles for your brewmaster head brewer and a director of operations or do they, is that a synonymous term in your brewery? So um, we have a head brewer role. We don't have anybody that takes the title of director of operations. Um, one of the things we're doing, you know, we, we, we talked about it at the start, is um, right now we're looking at defining each of our, our team's roles and responsibilities, mm -hmm. uh, everything that everybody's accountable for um, in a more 
defined way. Um, I think we've kind of realized we've grown to a point now we need to be very specific about what everybody's role is and how they interact with everybody. Um, uh, EOS, uh, Entrepreneurial Operating System, we're running through some elements of that around org structure. Mm -hmm. um, I am, um, so I left big business because this kind of stuff scared me and <laughs> it's like, um, and I wanted to be more, more, um, you know, able to make decisions in a, in a, in a quicker way. Um, and that worked fine. And until we were more than four people, <laughs> because right. what you find is at, at, at the point where you're not speaking to everybody every day, then you really do need some, some good processes and structure in place. Otherwise the message gets diluted or, uh, people's roles and responsibilities get confused. And, um, that's, one area that we are having to to work on and 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 sort out in the next year. Nice. And so your your current your head brewer. How long has he been with you? Is it the same one since the end of twenty seventeen? You mentioned. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, three three years or so. Um, and he's awesome. Um, really helped improve our yeast um, yeast health, uh, fermentation quality. Um, you know, really helped take us to that next, next level. Um, we have, uh, so we have, he's responsible for all, all brewing, um, and, and packaging. And also we have an experimental brewer that reports into him as well, who looks after the smaller brew houses. Yeah. Awesome. How many tap rooms do you guys have among the five buildings? Yeah. Uh, well, we have two, uh, we have two, but with COVID, one of them is relatively small it's in our production brewery that we've just had closed. Uh, we've, we've kept it closed in during, during COVID. Um, first of all, it's too small to really operate. Um, there's no outside space. And right now it's only outside dining. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, the, the um, better, um, the con less contact transactions need a, a few more people to help. Uh, operate from the brewery side so we took the the team that essentially worked in that that smaller tap room and put them into the bigger one we, we uh, both spaces are only a few blocks apart like six blocks apart um so they're both very very close um so it's not like uh it's a different city or anything yeah hey brandon do you want to tell us a little bit about your 30 barrel and 15 barrel and how you guys use it there operationally yeah, but yeah, first of all, though, let me just touch on what Adam just said. I mean, we've, we've had our tap room closed pretty much this entire time. Um, we closed it right before the, the first shutdown was sort of officially announced, and we uh, don't really have plans to open it until, optimistically, uh, the start of Q3 this year, you know, uh, and that's a, that's a moving target. That might get pushed back if uh, progress isn't, you know, moving along nationwide or it might get moved forward if things start to to turn you know optimistic uh in the next couple months but for us it, it was a pretty you know we're our we're distribution focused by about a 90 um to 10 percent ratio um so about 10 percent of our income comes from the tap room and just looking at the you know the the possible risk of you know people coming into the tap room infecting somebody on staff and then having that um transmit to the rest of our staff, you know, that, that would be the worst case scenario. So doing a risk benefit analysis, we decided to rethink our taproom operations. And what we've done is created a, a delivery and curbside 
option that's actually performing pretty well for us. Um, in the end, it's it's uh, making up a lot of what we would have been losing through the tap room. I'm curious, before we start talking about our brewery here, have you guys had to pivot and change? And if so, operationally, who's overseen any of the sort of COVID pivots that you all have been going through? Yeah, t- t- totally. Um, so we also closed our tap room before it was mandated, um, just just a short amount of time before. But um, And we moved to a to-go store. We don't do delivery, um, but we moved to a to-go model. And um, that we still have a to-go store in, in our in our tap room space, um, that's a separate area. So you don't have to go into the tap room to go to the to-go store. Um, and um, when we came back, we um, it was about two months uh, later from being closed from May, uh, from March to May. Yeah. When we came when we came back, we've only ever kept outside dining. So inside, yeah, I say dining, but out, outside tables, inside tables were allowed, but that kind of freaked us out uh, <laughs> too too much. So we've kept outside, and um, it really impacts restaurants, right? Whether you can have outside or inside, and we have quite a big outside space. So we have everything marked out with 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 kegs and and to ensure we have more than the required amount of distance between tables. Everything's outside. Um, so we one of the reasons why we closed our our smaller tap room is first of all it is small. There's no outside space, but also that's in our production brewery, and we wanted to keep that element of separation, um, like like you referred to, um, Brandon. So. Um, yeah, in terms of pivoting, uh, this is where, you know, I'm from the UK originally, and, and when all of this started, it was primarily started in Europe, right, and Italy did their shutdown. Well, that we had a, our, our, our sort of plan, our pivot plan before we really needed it here, just because I was kind of, it felt like it was coming, you know. Um, yeah. And, and then I'm always trying to think about what the next thing will be. So right now we're planning uh, when things do get better how do we open up and and what do we do and and um we're trying to, to plan a decision tree before those decisions need to happen <laughs> yeah we're right there with you i mean we we sat down and created a basically a shutdown plan and a reopen plan back in march and obviously it's it's had its own changes happen to the plan as we've gone through this because you know nobody had a crystal ball and if they did their crystal ball is surely broken this year so <laughs> you know it, we've needed to modify it as we've gone through the year but um you know i think that restaurants have been doing this live time right they've been adapting to this new world um you know one day at a time as as they're in it where we've had you know, the opportunity to sit back, focus on the production side of our business and observe how everybody else is doing business right now, who is a a restaurant or a tap room and looking at the, you know, the precautions that they're taking. So we're looking at now how we're going to incorporate some of that back into our reopen plan. Um, And it's, you know, given us the time to uh, to really focus on what we do want our tap room to be when we do reopen, um, you know, trying to look at it from an optimistic side, we're looking at this as a restart for our tap room. You know, what changes do we want to uh, apply to the tap room that for the past 10 years we've been operating, you know, in a certain way, how do we want to be operating when we reopen? So we're trying to, trying to, you know, find a, a silver lining there. Um, and I think that there, there are some resets to be had when, when, 
COVID's under control and business starts to come back to normal. I don't think it's going to be like flipping a switch and we're right back where we were. And I think that as far as operations go, you know, we might need to have somebody signed at the brewery who is really in charge of, um, you know, COVID protocols um, going forward in live time once we're reopened and how those are implemented throughout the brewery. I mean, we've we've written tons of new SOPs in relation to COVID, but applying them real time to customers is going to be, you know, I think a task um, that's that's going to require a lot of attention. Uh, I, I think I think that's awesome. Um, one thing that you did make me think, like like you said, the plan changes over time, right? And it's it's in constant flux, and you need to be sensitive to that. Well, the laws have changed, the rules have changed as well. So, what when when this and as you said, it's not a switch, right? It's going to be a dial when things come back. So, people aren't all of a sudden going to have a post-COVID party day, right? And then we're all good and everything's back. So, how do you how do you actually? operate in that gray when things are coming back how do you encourage people uh by providing them a safe environment so uh we're still going to be sticking around with significant distancing for some time yeah so so for example one 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 thing that we can do here is um we have as i mentioned a number of breweries we actually have four different breweries because we have a sour facility as well so what we might what we're looking at doing is is um potentially having that as a as a tap room as well to take stress off of our main tap room so use our sour facility um when things can come back to some resemblance of normal but still keep significant distance between the tables right so use use some of our assets in a different way if, if that makes sense um yeah absolutely by, by constantly challenging every assumption that you had as given uh, nothing's given anymore mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the things that this year has really done is it's forced us to challenge the way we looked at our business. You know, we, we found ways where we could eke out some profitability in, in areas that we might not have devoted that much attention to before because we were following our, you know, the current model that we had been following. And so I think when this is done, I think people are still going to, I think people have gotten used to delivery. I think they're going to still, um, you know, want delivery at, at least around here because we've had we've had success with our delivery program. I also think that the distribution market is going to look differently than it was before COVID. We are going to have closures of accounts that we sold beer to. So when we come back, that part of the market isn't going to be necessarily whole. So it, it is going to be a continual process that we're going to have to adjust to, both for safety and also in just terms of business. Let me interrupt you before you get into the scaling. I want to I want to bring up an awesome point that you mentioned about hiring someone that may be COVID re- responsible for all COVID activities or COVID um, uh, awareness in the brewery. We actually dis- discovered this year when we were doing our year end compass with all of our customers that tap room labor had gone up for most. And when you asked in the cases where you asked why they went from one salaried person to one salaried and plus another higher compensated, certainly higher than tip minimum wage mm-hmm. hourly employee yeah. to help herd humans, right? Help get people sat, moved, cleaned tables. So taproom labor actually did go up across all of our data that we that we have access to for that very reason so excellent point that when everything opens back up be prepared to have 
different uh, part of COVID. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A, a COVID staff. Yeah. And I think that, you know, every brewery is going to do it differently because just like we were talking about in the beginning about, you know, how you, how you scale people as opposed to just scaling beer. And when you have that aha moment where you need somebody, that's not just an aha moment. A lot of times it's tied into finances and what you can afford. And I think a lot of breweries, it it might be a reassigning of responsibilities where somebody is now more responsible for this or where this gets added into somebody's current responsibility list. But I think there is going to be um, uh, some need for this and not just in our industry, but I think, you know, for example, most hospitality industries are going to need to have somebody who at least consults or, uh, advises on these sorts of things at a bare minimum, because we are going to be living in a new world and this is going to be, you know, on everybody's mind, I think going forward for, for quite some time. Yeah. It's going to add a level of comfort for sure to customers. Yeah. Knowing that an establishment has strict COVID protocols and they have someone dedicated to overseeing and managing and educating and so on. So a uh, really good point brought up. Uh, thanks, Chris. Can I just add one thing? Um, when when the, the kind of shutdown happened, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, what do you call it? Like sort of reaction, uh, sort of like a, an instant reaction to events happening. So uh, by that, like one person would have a uh, come into contact with somebody with COVID and a whole places would shut down. Um, and I think that's just because we were, didn't even understand really what we were looking at. So we got hold of a consultant who I worked with to define our um, internal uh, COVID protocols Mm-hmm. and and define them in a in a lot of detail so that if any you know so we have a decision tree if if this happens then does this happen or that happen and um i i see that as being again something that we're going to have to as as cases change uh what do we do about that so one example would be around requiring vaccine vaccinations right in your team mm-hmm. um, obviously i don't think that's the right answer but if somebody's not vaccinated should they be able to be on the front line with them with customers right should they be able to travel with the team to gabf or other places you know um i think and i don't know the answer to those questions but i know that those are questions out there that that's the next phase of all of this discussion yeah and and we're look we're not done learning about this thing you know i mean there is still science evolving around um around covid and around these variants and the way it mutates i mean it's going to be a very long time before we have a masterful knowledge of of this virus you know if ever and i think that as to your point, all the reaction when this first happened, we we knew next to nothing about the virus. We yeah. barely knew how it was transmitted. Um, you know, and and there's been a lot more, obviously, over the past year that's come out that explains how it's transmitted. And and you know, as a result of that, we've all been able to modify our COVID plans and and working with the best information, but we still just don't have all the information and um, you know, there's going to be a constant evolution of how this thing is treated and all the, and all the ripple effects that that has through our businesses and and every business alike. Um, But yeah, it's, it's going to be a long time before I think we stop evolving the way that we treat uh, this virus and the way we treat our businesses in relation to it. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right, Brandon, tell us about your ops. Yeah, man. So, you know, we started with a 15 barrel pub system, basically. Um, when we were opening up 
we really wanted a, a 30 barrel system. Um, we, our plan was always to be distribution focused. I mean, we were opening, I think before the, the real sort of taproom model we've seen in the last half of the most recent decade really exploded um, where, where distribution focused breweries was still a very viable option. Distributors were still looking for new local breweries and there hadn't been a brewery in Washington DC since 1956. So, you know, that was sort of the opening that we saw when, when we, came together to start this brewery. Um, and we started with, you know, 6,000 square feet uh, on the outside of, you know, town, barely still in Washington, D.C., in, in an old grimy warehouse um, and built it up, you know, and, and maximized every bit of our budget. But we were able to uh, get a 15-barrel um, brew house produced for us. And so we started with that. And it was fully manual. Um, and it was quite a while before we had a robust staff. I mean, the first several years, um, my my business partner and the head brewer, Jeff, uh, myself, and we did hire one employee about six months in. Um, and it was really the three of us um, doing most of the ops for, for quite some time. And, you know, it really resonated with me earlier when you said once you, your staff gets so big that you don't see everybody day every day, you really do need clearly defined roles. And, I, you know, I think you sort of get to that point before you realize that you need the roles. And yeah. for us, you're just so used to being in the moment where, you know, yeah, I would see Chris and Jeff every single day, all day long. Uh, and then we would go out and work events together. You know, I mean, we practically lived most of the moments of our lives together for those first several years on canning days, you know, friends and families and spouses would, would come in to help us get through the canning runs. And, and um, as we, as we, we grew, we grew very quickly in the first several years. Um, you know, we produced 1,600 barrels of beer our first year and 5,000 our second. Um, and that was, a, that was a huge jump. Um, and it was very strenuous on the small group of people. But from that point onward, we, we did realize we needed more staff. And um, at first it was just sort of like, even as we were growing, we were operating the way that we had operated the first couple of years where just everybody sort of does everything. There aren't necessarily clear roles. Um, and the first time I think we added a real clear role is when we hired, you know, a packaging manager um, and well, and our tasting room manager prior to that. But I'm thinking mainly about production um, when we we realized that, hey, um, it's going to benefit us to have somebody who is very familiar with um, a, a cask filling system. <laughs> we started with a used cask line. Um that was a, a five head filler machine that we got from a, a Canadian brewery. And, you know, neither of us, Jeff knew a lot about brewing and I knew a lot about beverage sales and marketing. That was, that was where I came into this industry from, from, from wine sales and marketing. Um, but neither of us had a lot of education on packaging and the packaging we did know was not aluminum cans. So that was a, a big learning curve for us. And when we made that first hire, it really, uh, we got that feeling almost right away of, wow, now we have a lot of time to focus back on sales and to focus back on recipe development and um, and other areas of production. So it, from there, we grew to about 8,000 barrels, 11,000 barrels, and um, we were aiming for 18K this year, but because of COVID, we're, we're not going to get there. Um, but the past couple of years, we found ourselves sort of hovering around around the 15,000 barrel mark um, because we just essentially sort of, you know, hit the traditional cap for, for the area of Washington, D.C. that we're in. So um, the past couple of years, we spent a lot of time 
sort of rethinking our brand. And we're also a decade old. Um, we added a seltzer line this year. And that's actually turned out to be a pretty large percentage um, of our sales. But, you know, we, we sort of resisted, uh, I think, the hazy IPA for a little bit. And then when we did decide to add one, um, it quickly, you know, performed for us very well. And then um, we added variety packs, which we had never done. And then, and then finally, um, the seltzer line. But I think it goes to show the, the fluidity of our industry. And, um, you know, I see that fluidity when I look through the different groupings of products that you've got. This is an industry where you have to always be paying attention. You've got to be paying attention to um, what's happening product-wise in the industry. You have to decipher um, trends from, from actual shifts in, in what people are drinking that are going to be permanent and sticking around. And, and you've got to see the fluidity of, of style, um, of, of the way beers are made, the way production happens, um, and the way beers are sold and marketed. I think, you know, it's, it's easy to do that or to think about that with other industries, but, uh, the brewing industry is no different. It's evolving and it's continued to evolve. Um, and you've got to always sort of have your finger on the pulse of what's happening and also maintain the integrity of yourself and your brewery, because let's be honest, our customers really do like to see, uh, brands that they believe in because we are small businesses and people want to, uh, support the businesses that they identify with. And I think authenticity is a big part of that. So, as you're scaling and as you're growing, these are all things that need to have their own, you know, place in the balance. Um, but, you know, it, it happened pretty organically for us as far as, um, okay, you know, we've maxed out this capacity. Now we need another fermenter. Now we need another fermenter. Now we need another fermenter. And then all of a sudden you get to the point where another fermenter isn't going to help. And you realize that you need another brew house. So it, it took us, we were, we were stuck there for, um, about a year and a half before we actually pulled the trigger on getting the 30 barrel brew house. And then it was about another year for the, uh, installation, you know, production and installation of that brew house. But, um, we switched over to an automated, um, 30 barrel brew house that, that really changed the way that we brew. Um, so, you know, it was, uh, a situation where now we were really educating people beyond just the process of brewing, but how to use this specific equipment digitally. Um, and it's, it's been a, a, a big spurt for us as far as, you know, the, the staff that we're bringing in, instead of looking to bring in people to train up, you know, we really made that transition a few years back to looking to bring in people, even if they cost a little bit more who are coming in with specialized skill sets that we need here at the brewery. And I think that's been a, a big point of transition for us. And in the same way that you need, when you realize, hey, we need to bring in more people, that's another transition where you realize, hey, it's time for us to start looking for people who know things that we don't know, people who can bring value to this company in their role. Um, you know, and, and instead of hiring somebody to, to train, hiring somebody that you can learn from yourself. Do you, um, Brandon, have a, do you self-distribute or do you have a distributor network? We have a distributor network. So we, um, we have, we're with the Reyes uh, distributor group here in DC, in Virginia. Um, and we've got some independent smaller distributors that we work with outside of our local market. But for the most part, Reyes handles us uh, here locally. Oh, cool, cool. Um, to, to me, it's, it's interesting about um, our, our business is that we're selling beer to a distributor who's selling beer to a retailer who is selling beer to the end consumer, right? So you've got all of these uh, tiers, obviously, um, but for everything to work, to, to get 
to get the growth that a small brewery um, ideally might, might want. All of the tiers have to be working in harmony. Do you have any insight into people on, on how that 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 works? Yeah, you know, I think that um, I think that trust is a is a big part of of that relationship. I think that uh, you know you've got to be able to trust your distributor. The distributor is going to have um, advice, and they're going to know things that work, especially in their markets. And it might not always be what you had in mind, um, but you got to trust them. And I think that in that relationship of trust, it gets respected from both sides. Um, and working with a distributor can be, you know, we had a situation with a distributor when we first started that was not ideal. And, um, you know, our, our current distributor purchased our distribution rights from our previous distributor, and it's been a totally different relationship. Um, and they, in so doing that, really invested in us, and that laid the groundwork for us to trust them. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, I think listening to um, the request that your distributor has, it can't just be one way. I mean, you can send them your requests and what you need and what your growth plan is. But then when they've got requests back for you about how to support them, you know, listen to it. I mean, one of the things we were set on on distributing a lot of 16 ounce cans back when when uh, 16 ounce cans really became a, a big force um, in other markets. And the feedback we got was not in D.C. Um, you know, 16 ounce cans are not a hot product if you traditionally look at sales in D.C., so at first we were sort of resistant to that and tried to push for it, but then we started repackaging some of those products in 12 ounce six packs instead of 16 ounce four packs, and you know we saw we saw that push. Um, so I think there's a lot of trust. You got to take a, a blind step of faith sometimes, and just like knowing the difference between when something is a flash in the pan trend versus a true evolution in products in our industry, you've got to go on a little bit of your your gut feeling. Um, when you're working with your distributor as well. Yeah. yeah, no, I think that's all great. I, I, that trust piece. Yeah, the key thing is it's a partnership, right? Because right. I, I see it when it breaks down. It's one. What it's normally the brewery complaining at the distributor that they haven't done this, that, or the other. Well, we're all responsible for all of the outcomes, right? That's, that's correct. And it's just a different. It's a different mindset, and I, and I totally agree that trust and that partnership is is key. You, you can't bring on a distributor and just think, okay, you know, we don't have to focus on sales that much anymore. In fact, I feel like it's almost the opposite because you still need to be out there in the market, but you also need to be giving the distributor more than just that physical support on the street. You need to be giving them the organization and the materials that they need to work within their system. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's not a situation of making something easier, but it's a situation where working together, you can achieve a lot. And let's not, uh, you know, let's be honest, you're giving up some profit in order to work with a distributor. So you, why not max, maximize the quantity, you know? Yeah. 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 Definitely. Well, guys, awesome show today. Adam, we like to end each episode with a shout out from our guest. Do you have anybody in particular you'd like to give a shout out to? Well, I think the key thing about operations is that it's a, a team effort, right? Sure. Um, and, um, I think, I think the 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 key shout out I'd like to give is to everybody in our team that's not me, because <laughs> with, without without them this wouldn't happen anymore. And that's it's kind of humbling as a as a founder. You have to realize that it's not about you anymore. It's about everybody else doing everything, and how can you facilitate them? So then you become a support to them. Um, and 
Yeah. So I, I would say, you know, from the start, it was, you know, Mike um, helping Bill from the, before that, it was about Grace supporting this crazy idea. Um, but now it's about everybody in the team doing their, their piece to support the bigger, the bigger, the bigger goal. Yeah. Awesome, man. Hey, well, I appreciate you joining us today and uh, thank you very much and hope to talk to you soon. Sounds great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Adam. Thank you for listening to this episode of the true craft podcast links to cool information about our guests and other fun facts can be found in the show notes. This podcast is sponsored by small batch standard. Small Batch Standard is the premier financial agency built to serve the craft brewing industry. We help craft breweries grow profits through outsourced accounting, tax planning and filing, and growth consulting. Visit sbstandard.com today to learn more and request a discovery call. See ya!